Hello, and welcome to Listen In, a podcast about the people, movements, and events that made the Spanish Civil War a part of Canada's cultural and political history. I'm your host, Karina Mickelson, and today I'm joined by co-host Kevin Levangi as we interview Tyler Wenzel, a military historian and legal scholar. This is part one of our interview with Tyler Wenzel, and part two will be posted in two weeks. In part one, Tyler speaks to us about Ed Cecil Smith, a Canadian volunteer in the Spanish Civil War, a commanding officer in the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, and an important figure in the Canadian Communist Party. Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, so my name is Tyler Wenzel. I'm a researcher based out of Toronto, Ontario. My interests are largely oriented around the Spanish Civil War and the military and legal and labor dimensions of it. How did you become interested in the Spanish Civil War? So I started my research into the Spanish Civil War from the point of view of a law student who had a really strong pre-existing interest in military history and national security law. So when I was in law school, I wrote a paper about the overlap in the law of neutrality and Canada's Foreign Enlistment Acts. And once you're in that space, obviously you have to deal with the Spanish Civil War. And I wanted to use a, a case study. So I thought I'd use Edward Cecil Smith, who was the commander of the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. And the, instead of having like a pithy little paragraph that just explained how the law applied to him based on the time he left and the time he came back, I ended up uh, digging into it pretty deep and wrote a book on the subject. And now I'm working on a, a second book about uh, William Crane, who was a Canadian who went to Barcelona with the Poom during the war. And the last uh, surviving Canadian veteran of the Spanish Civil War, right? Yes. Uh, he just turned 105. I was at his birthday party. He's, a, you know, he's 105, so he's what you'd think 105-year-old moves like. But he's, his mind is still pretty good. He's not really going to tell you a story. But if you tell him a story, he'll, he'll be able to react to it and, and tell you what he thought about that person or what he felt on that day. It's pretty impressive. Very incredible man. We haven't yet gotten a chance to read your book, but I watched your talk from uh, March 2017 where you sort of laid out, I guess, the beginnings or, or a, a work in progress of the, of the work. And that talk you take Teruel as a starting point for your narrative about Smith's life. Is that also how you ended up organizing your book or were there other central themes or patterns that you really wanted to highlight in, in your work? So I organized the book, Not for King or Country, forthcoming from the University of Toronto Press, in three parts. It's a chronology. So part one is Cecil Smith as a missionary kid growing up in China educated at a British boarding school, working as a banker in Toronto, militiaman, marries a good Anglican girl, Lillian Googe, who's the secretary of uh, his parents' missionary organization. So I haven't really described anything that describes like a uh, revolutionary yet. <laughs> uh, part two is about his, his coming to join the Communist Party of Canada and all the different things he did within it. Um, he really saw this as the struggle of the day, and he sought to engage it at every level. He's involved with uh, legal support for the imprisoned party leaders, cultural activities for propaganda purposes, newspaper work for spreading their message, lobbying for public support for the Soviet Union, and then taking up arms in Spain. Part three is everything after Spain, is public speaking, continued political work, joining the Canadian army during the Second World War, but getting kicked out for being a communist, though all he wanted to do was fight fascists, mm -hmm. and then labor organizing activity with the Canadian Seamen's Union. So it just follows the chronology. The main themes, I would say, it was supposed to be a military history. That's all it was supposed to be. It was just supposed to be me writing about the different battles and trying to provide a 
good distillation of what the MacPaps did, uh, and it grew into something more than that. I think now the main themes are why do people go away and fight in a conflict like this? And the answer is the very unsatisfying, it's complicated, but when you follow the threads back, it makes sense. It doesn't seem like a crazy spur of the moment insane romantic thing that something does it comes from somewhere and those become the themes the conflict and information between the party press and the mainstream media where people really didn't know what to believe how good or bad the soviet union was the pervasiveness of police surveillance the degree of censorship that was going on and just the honest desire that so many people had when they felt so helpless during the depression to actually tangibly do something to fight fascism. Spain gave them that in a time when they really couldn't get a sense of, uh, of meaning of really fighting this foe that they saw on the horizon. Well, that, that ties nicely into another question that we have. So it is interesting to for me in particular, to compare Cecil Smith to Bethune in a lot of ways, because they did have a roughly similar upbringing, you know, and, and from missionary families and certainly quite conservative Christian families. And, and people always kind of point to Bethune's like personal temperament as his, as the reason why he would end up becoming a communist. Like, you know, obviously on a more immediate level, it's his trip to the Soviet Union, it's his like uh, experience of tuberculosis and trying to treat tuberculosis, but people really, but really say that it was his, his love of shocking and kind of uh, <laughs> irritating his social betters, I guess we'll say, that, that really kind of drove him in some ways to, to lose contact with like his old way of thinking. So uh, what I'm wondering is what is it about Cecil Smith that made him go over? Because I know it at various points, people say it's, you know, his time as a, a court reporter. I think you you mentioned seeing the repression of the communist movement really kind of drove him in that direction. What Would you be able to kind of parse that a little bit for us? Yeah, so Cecil Smith and Bethune, um, I think they did have a fair bit in common, and they did know each other, too. They were connected in a lot of ways. Bethune came from a bit more money from Cecil Smith, but they were both, they were both middle class, classically British upbringings, you know, in Canada, but British... Uh, in character. Uh, they were both very well read. They were horribly argumentative and artistically inclined. And they were both impressed by what they saw, because Bethune actually went or believed, because Cecil Smith never did, was happening in the Soviet Union relative to how Canada was dealing with these things. And I think they also both had a sense of that Canadian society at the time was organized in hierarchies that they viewed to be unfair and unjust. So Bethune didn't struggle with that personally too much, but he he saw the, the living conditions, or he was aware of the living conditions of his tuberculosis patients, which was pretty eye-opening, the rich man's tuberculosis and the poor man's tuberculosis. There was also some tension he had between him as a as a WASP in French Catholic society in Montreal. Um, I don't think that was a huge factor, but it was just a reminder that there's these structures on top of them that he didn't think was fair. And Cecil Smith had the same thing. Cecil Smith was a very smart, he was a very educated guy. He saw how rough things were for the working class and how good things were for the people who had money. And none of that seemed fair to him on any level. So, for Cecil Smith, he was a he was a banker, and then he lost his job. He was a soldier, and then he became a pacifist. Although, he, since he went to war again, it was a certain kind of pacifism. It was an anti-imperialist war pacifism. He was a reporter at the rally in 1929 when Draper's Red Squad, Toronto Police, put the boots to the Communist Party and anyone else who was standing close enough to them. And Cecil Smith was also the court reporter who was in the courtrooms when people were being brought up on charges that he just thought were absolutely ridiculous because people were getting charged for vagrancy and 
which could be applied to almost anything. So people were getting charged and thrown in jail at the time for doing ridiculous things like speaking their native tongue in a public hall. The first use of tear gas in Toronto was in 1929 because at the Standard Theatre, a Yiddish theatre, they had the audacity in violation of a police order to speak Yiddish. Now, it was a Communist Party rally, so it's hard to say how much of it was anti-Semitism and how much of it was anti-Communism. But regardless, the spoken word in a public hall led to the police using tear gas inside. So Cecil Smith saw it in these theaters, in these courtrooms, and the only thing, the only group that seemed to be doing anything about it was the party, the Communist Party of Canada. He met Oscar Ryan, who was the director of the Canadian Labour Defence League, and they were actually hiring lawyers for these workers who were defending uh, the worker, the working class against these offenses that Cecil Smith didn't see as offenses, but just an exercise of a, a British. He viewed Canadianism through the lens of Britishness, um, exercise of their civil liberties. So the Communist Party was paying for lawyers to take care of these people, and they got to know Oscar Ryan. And Oscar Ryan was his sponsor to bring him into the party. And the arrest of the Communist Party's leadership really seemed to be what threw him into overdrive, that this was the cause of the ages. When the, when the Canadian government saw fit to arrest the leadership of the Communist Party of Canada, that's when Cecil Smith seemed to transition from being a part-time dabbler to being a full-time party organizer, who mostly worked through the front organizations. So it's, again, it doesn't seem like a crazy thing to do. It's step-by-step step following the breadcrumbs. It doesn't seem like an irrational thing for him to do. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. So how did Cecil Smith or Cecil Smith get permission to travel to Spain? So he was one of the first 20 to travel. Um, was the party worried about losing such a valuable wasp? I did not read this question before I said <laughs> Such a valuable wasp, wasp in a party full of Finns and Ukrainians. So this makes sense when you were talking earlier about uh, Canadian party not sending over as many higher level people. How did uh, Cecil Smith end up there? So Cecil Smith was, it was unusual that Cecil Smith got sent among the first 20 for for two reasons. One, uh, the, the fact that he was a wasp and not just a kind of sort of wasp, like uh, like Tim Buck, for instance, who, who was a wasp, but Cecil Smith was a, he actually still spoke with an English accent, even though he grew up in China, and he was a practicing Anglican. Whereas Tim Buck met most of those criteria, but you wouldn't see him in church too often apart from um, propaganda activities that occurred later in the popular front period, where it was reported on in the media and he made a very big deal about. So he was unique and valuable that way. And the other part was that he was married. The I'm not sure when it changed because it's always just through the police reports, but the police reports are pretty consistent that they said that the party didn't want to send married men. They didn't want to send married men because if they were killed in battle, then presumably the spouse would become would become a dependent of the party, and they were they were concerned about taking on that burden. So we'll only send single men. Cecil Smith was married. They sent him anyway. I think the reason for this is that although Cecil Smith was very very much a senior leader in terms of the front organizations, like Canadian Labor Defense League, the Progressive Artists Club, the Friends of the Soviet Union, etc. He was very much on the outside of the central party leadership. He was the president of the War II Committee, but he was really argumentative, and he consistently got into arguments with senior leaders. His uh, Spanish Civil War file indicates, and it's in his handwriting, that he was actually fired from the Daily Clarion not long before the Spanish Civil War erupted. And it says it was for uncomradely conduct towards a fellow comrade. 
Which seems like a polite way of saying he got in one of his famous crazy arguments. And he had to go back and work for the uh, for the bourgeois press, for the Montreal Gazette. So I think by the time Cecil Smith was putting up his hand and saying he wanted to go, he was viewed to be valuable, but not so valuable they couldn't spare him. And also he was a thorn in a lot of their sides. So if we send him, he'll probably do well because he was a regimental sergeant major in the Canadian militia. We'll have that representative overseas, which is valuable, and we won't have to deal with the guy over here. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it makes a lot of sense. So that yeah, you mentioned his his Canadian military service, and then earlier you also mentioned that he was trained in Soviet military doctrine in Spain. From what you know, would you say that his style as a, a commander of the MacPaps was more shaped by the training he received in Spain or by the, the previous military experience in Canada? I think tactically, he was more influenced by the, the Red Army advisors. Uh, he didn't write too much about it, although during the, the Second World War, he wrote a couple of articles that were just explaining how incredible and great the Red Army was why we should be happy that they are our allies. And in that, he gave some anecdotes about how great the Red Army advisors were. I think think that his tactics were largely influenced by the Soviet Red Army advisors because, A, if he didn't apply the information that they were imbuing on him, he would have faced disciplinary measures. B, it was the first time he was getting officer leadership training. And C, he was always under the watchful guise of the political commissars. Now, there's also not such a big difference in the tactics that he would have been trained in, where you can say, this is something he did that was clearly Red Army, and this is another thing that he did that was clearly Canadian Army. Although at Terrell, he did try to exercise as much of a mobile defense as was possible, given the terrain and the forces available to him, which would indicate the application of the training he received from the Red Army. Right. But as a commander, I think he was much more influenced by the cultural aspects of the Canadian military than anything else. Cecil Smith was often criticized by the Canadian volunteers for being arrogant, haughty, aloof. And there's no doubt he was arrogant. He was happy to debate with people and have arguments. This was how he worked through ideas. Uh, He was very well-read, and the average Canadian volunteer wasn't. So he definitely was arrogant, and it makes sense that he would have come across that way. The aloofness, though, what I find interesting about that is whereas many of the leaders in the international brigades uh, would be described through a modern military lens as being very chummy, very friendly, very familiar with their soldiers. Cecil Smith wasn't. And that's much more in line with how the Canadian and British Army operated at the time. So I think if Cecil Smith had been in the British or Canadian military under similar circumstances, he wouldn't have been described as terribly aloof. He would have been described as a pretty normal officer in terms of aloofness but it didn't map on well to the international brigades. Yeah. Well, it is interesting too, because you also mentioned at, at another point in, in your, your talk about how he, he personally goes out on patrol at Tyrell and brings back Mark Haldane, who had been wounded during, during this, this patrol. And I th- just, that's an interesting kind of contrast with this idea of, of aloofness, because he's really personally involving himself in a, a fairly dangerous maneuver that he doesn't need to be a part of and then he also certainly doesn't need to pick up like a rank-and-file soldier and carry him back to the lines uh, so that that's kind of an interesting contrast i guess in terms of maybe it's personal courage compared to this sort of like cultivated aloofness but it's just they, they do sort of a contrast i guess yeah lawrence kane who was a soldier in the in the mac paths he he didn't like cecil smith as a person he didn't like that he was arrogant, he didn't like that he was haughty, he just said, I didn't know anyone who loved the man. But, he was a good military commander, 
and if there was a risk that had to be taken, he would take it. Yeah, so he he was not risk averse. He would go out on patrols. He was engaged in fighting. He was definitely wounded in battle on a number of occasions. He would go out on patrols, and when Mark Haldane was hit, uh, he carried him back personally. So he didn't lack for personal courage, but it was it was measured. He wasn't the one who was going to perhaps charge the machine gun nest, but he would be the one who would look at it, make a plan, and be part of the the joint combined action to take the machine gun nest. Right, and in a lot of ways, that's probably a <laughs> a much preferable quality for a commander to have than yeah. uh, than the the Joe Dallet approach that that at one point gets him killed. Right, where he's he's personally leading a leading a charge because he has a chip on his shoulder after being you know spoken to by the by the brigade command or whatever. Yes, absolutely. And there's there's other examples too where you you read the action of a particular commander and you're not sure, you know, if they survive, it's brave, and if they don't, it's stupid. Right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, what was Cecil Smith's route to Spain? So Cecil Smith was early on. Uh, so the, the whole process that became fairly sophisticated hadn't quite gelled. Paul Phillips and Peter Hunter were managing Toronto Station at that point, providing tickets and whatnot as the volunteers made their way to Toronto. Peter Hunter mentioned Cecil Smith briefly in his uh, interview with Mac Reynolds about him being a particularly standout individual. He was the pretty much the only intellectual he ever saw come through his, his office on his way to Spain. That's how he put it. Uh, Cecil Smith left by train on February 15th, 1937. Again, that's pretty early because the first volunteer, the first five volunteers got to Spain on February 4th. Um, they crossed the border at Niagara. He didn't say on his forms that he was going to the World's Fair in Paris, which was a pretty normal thing. But he did say he was going on an extended stay vacation in France. Mm-hmm. And once they got to New York, they got their White Star Line tickets. Almost all the Canadian volunteers traveled on White Star Lines. And he boarded on February 17th on the President Roosevelt. And what I find interesting is that although when they left Toronto, it was Cecil Smith and two other comrades, and he never names the two comrades, and they left very quietly, and they lied about why they were going, and they pretended like they didn't know each other. When they got on the ship, perhaps because the voyage was as long as it was, everyone seemed to stop pretending that they didn't know who the other ones were. So the ship actually had 56 American volunteers and 21 Canadian volunteers on it. Oh, wow. So that's a, that's a fairly large number. And there may have been more. There may be some names that we just don't know. But that, that's a pretty good number. And they actually gathered on the deck and took a group photograph. So it seems pretty hard to think that anyone else on that ship was confused about who they were or where they were going. But the, there were some other notable Canadians there. There was uh, Bob Kerr, who was the party representative to Spain. Uh, Ted Allen was also on the same boat. He became one of the main reporters. And... Uh, Lionel Edwards, Bill Hallowell, and Alec Miller, who all became company commanders, were also on the same ship. Oh, interesting. So there's there's some the re- the rest of the questions here kind of relate to the the departure from Spain and and what he gets up to when he gets back to Canada. But what do you make of the accusations of desertion or like self infliction of a wound? I it, I find that all very hard to to parse, kind of from the the bits and pieces that we can pick up through the different documents that we've seen? What, what do you know about that whole situation? Well, first, just to define it, there's actually three incidents that some of what's mentioned in this file might be referring to. So just to go through them real quick. Uh, one, there was an episode uh, outside of Alcanaz during Franco's Aragon Offensive, we generally just call it the retreats because we're looking at it from the Republican point of view. So the nationalists completely had the upper hand and the international brigades had just been shattered and they were withdrawing up this, this narrow road between hills and there was a river on the other side. 
and trucks were pushing through the position. They'd lost all their machine guns. Companies were intermingling with each other. It was just the cohesion was absolutely gone. And although through the modern lens we say, you know, cavalry has no place on the modern battlefield, well, cavalry has no place when they're dealing with, say, machine guns and prepared positions. But when they're dealing with a force like the one I just described, they can be pretty devastating. So Moorish cavalry charged into this body of troops that I just described, and there was just no resistance. Cecil Smith actually got stabbed by a moor on a horse. In, 19, in the 1930s, people were still getting stabbed by moors on horses. Uh, this is, I, I had a lot of trouble um, wrapping my head around that image. And this was uh, the point in time, I think, when Cecil Smith was alleged to have yelled something along the lines of, like, get to, get to Alkanaz, every man for themselves, and everyone just ran. Cecil Smith had to swim across a river, and people did eventually find one another. So, yes, that's not exactly anyone's finest hour, but I give the man a little bit of wiggle room, because I think you have to hold yourself in pretty high regard to say that if we're already panicking and fleeing and we've lost control of the situation, and then a man stabs me with a spear, I might not come up with an articulate plan in that moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So there's that one. The second incident happened in Caspe. Cecil Smith had made his way back along a different line. He'd had been separated and, there, and things were just a mess, but the British and the Americans had largely gone a little bit further north, where the Canadian Spanish had gone a little bit further south. So Cecil Smith actually left some of his soldiers in the rear, put them under the charge of another, of another officer, uh, an American-Spanish officer named Bragg, and he hitchhiked back to the front in an ambulance. So he was going, he was in the rear and went back to the front and he linked up with David Doran, who was leading the defense at Caspe. And the force was pretty badly mauled and they just lost a hill on the edge of town. So Doran had him, had Cecil Smith assault the hill. Cecil Smith took the force, the troops, you know, he didn't know and they weren't organized. So, but he took the hill back, held the hill, and when the sun started to come up, he was surrounded. There were troops, there were nationalist troops behind him, firing at him from his rear, and his own soldiers were pretty much out of ammunition at that point. So he coordinated with the British forces to his right and organized a withdrawal. So they did withdraw, but at a certain point, the withdrawal turned into a full-on run. Yeah. Cecil Smith had been trying to get instructions from Doran, and as they were running through the town, the runner came out and said, your orders are to hold the hill at whatever cost. At which point, they'd given up the hill. They had no support. They were surrounded. They were out of ammunition. But Duran was furious because the rest of the defense fell apart in losing the hill. So that's the second incident. And again, not sure how harshly we can criticize Cecil Smith for that one. The third thing is the self-inflicted wound. So following the Ebro, the alleged self-inflicted wound, I should say, following the Ebro offensive, uh, Cecil Smith was shot in the leg by his own pistol. And that's one of two things, an accident or deliberate. No one saw it, so we don't know for sure. We do know that most of his soldiers came to his defense and said that, well, this actually happens all the time. Um, it shouldn't, but it does. People have accidents. We're tired. We're hungry. We're exhausted. Uh, it was an accident. The commissars, who disliked Cecil Smith, of course, they said that it was deliberate. We can't know. I think a self-inflicted wound at that point would be a bit out of character, given the amount of times that Cecil Smith kept 
putting himself at risk and volunteering for things. And he would volunteer to fight two more times after that. He volunteered to defend Barcelona. And he volunteered for the Canadian Army in the Second World War. But we can't know. He, there's, there's really no way of knowing. I do note, however, that the commissars who criticized him and said that they did think it was a self-inflicted wound, A, if they truly believed that, they could have had him brought up on charges, but they didn't. And the punishment could have been as severe as execution. B, in their own examination of the events, they decided that uh, there was no proof. And C, the commissars and his critics consistently described Cecil Smith as having shot himself in the foot, when in fact the wound was in his leg. So that implies, I think, that they didn't actually know what they were talking about. They had not investigated the matter in any detail. They just didn't like the guy and assumed the worst. <laughs> but especially what you're saying about him volunteering to stay in Barcelona, which was not exactly a, a pleasant place to be mm-hmm. in uh, at this point. Um, I, yeah, it, it does seem does seem kind of implausible at this point. Like you said, we'll never really know. And that that also reminds me of you know when we we have all these these files that we put up on our website, and you know it's it's really difficult to to parse through especially the various like allegations about certain volunteers. Cause it yeah. says, you know, someone deserted, someone had a self-inflicted wound and, and we really are, it's really difficult to, to figure out exactly how to like put that on our website because yeah. you, you really don't want to, you know, slander someone who's been dead for 50 years or, or 60 years, but, but you also do want to include the, the information that we do have about people. So it's always kind of, there's a real tension there when it comes to, comes to our work, so it's nice to be able to have someone do a, a much deeper dive on, on yeah. a figure and, and actually kind of parse out what happened. So we appreciate that for sure. Yeah, <laughs> it makes our jobs easier. Um, oh, and the other the other thing I was thinking too is that the story about the the cavalry charges is so interesting, just because it that plays so clearly into what we've talked about before in terms of the like the really like racist portrayals mm-hmm. of like the, the North African involvement in the Spanish Civil War from the Republican side. Um, and just like, you know, that's such a such a visceral image that could be straight out of like, you know, the Reconquista or whatever. Like yeah. it really does sound like something from... from it's very know, cinematic. It is very cinematic. And it, and it really seems like something from 500 years before this, yeah. this conflict took place. And I think it would really... You can only imagine how effective that kind of... Like that kind of uh, event would be if you portrayed it in front of, you know, the Spanish Catholic population, even if they were Republicans. So it's interesting to see that. That's true. Although it's also this very weird tension that you have in the portrayal of the fascist forces that, like, you have them using this very frightening technology in terms of planes and bombings. And then you have the Moroccans who are characterized as this, like, savage and uncivilized. So, like, these two extremes. Yeah. Like, technological warfare and, I don't know, the most visceral. Yeah, of, like, yeah. very... I think a lot about the ways that they use... We see the terms of, like, savage and monstrous in... Barbarous, yeah. In barbarous. And it often comes up in, like, extreme bombing and in yeah. descriptions of the Moroccan soldiers. No yeah, exactly. what they're doing. It's like, yeah, yeah. Like, like the, you know, a, a bayonet charge or, or yeah. one of those... Their, their famous knife work, as they call it, or, yeah. like, the bombing of Guernica. Like, those are yeah. the two, like, barbarous things that you hear about all the time, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. And it is definitely racially charged, although uh, the bombing of the cities is a very different matter. But if an action has taken place by um, the soldiers from Africa, it's displayed as being barbarous and savage. But if the same thing is done by a, I'll just say it, a white soldier, it's interpreted as being brave and courageous. And you see this even in the literature of the very progressively minded daily clarion yeah Yeah. totally which you would think would have extracted those racial prejudices from it but but they really don't Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i mean we talk at length in other places about the how in a lot of ways it's the failure of the popular front government of spain to to reckon with the need for moroccan independence that that ends up with moroccans fighting for franco right so Mm -hmm. there's this this sort of blind spot involving like colonial and racial ideologies that ends up 
just being reinforced by by these images of, of Moroccan soldiers. So. When Cecil Smith comes back to Canada, he goes on a speaking tour. What do we know about his speaking tour? Or what do you know? <laughs> we know a fair bit about his speaking tour because there was almost always an RCMP informer or police officer in the room. Thank you, RCMP. (laughs) So they kept pretty detailed notes, and those notes covered everything from what was said to Cecil Smith's demeanor to the nature of the audience that was coming to attend these things. Uh, That's always an interesting point in a lot of these RCMP reports where they describe um, the, the foreignness of the audience if they seem to be mostly composed of foreigners or if they mostly can be concerned with, uh, with quote-unquote Canadians, which you know, generally meant wasps. Yeah. Um, but at a lot of these meetings, they did kind of consistently note that there were not too many foreigners attending these events, that they were largely being attended by sort of your standard wasp middle-class members, which was a little bit worrisome for them. <laughs> uh, some of the other things that they did, which are, which also play to that, was Cecil Smith and Lionel Edwards and a few others went to Hamilton and they were actually a part of the unveiling of a cenotaph. A cenotaph to the Great War, to the First World War. Oh, wow. So this was very, very... This was inconceivable a few years earlier when Cecil Smith himself was speaking out about the, speaking out against the Great War as being this uh, imperialist adventure that uh, was just the capitalists turning the working class against each other. Um, but now there was this movement to draw this connection between the veterans of the Great War and the veterans of the Spanish Civil War. So they were inviting MacPaps to unveil this Great War cenotaph. And the Massey Hall rally in February 1939 that Cecil Smith put a prominent place in, it also had a lot of First World War commemorative symbolism involved, which was very different from anything uh, they'd been using prior to that. Cecil Smith also went to Montreal. That was the farthest east that he went, as far as I can tell, um, where the Montreal police shut down one of his rallies. The RCMP also had him speak it's it's not clear from the report but the way the report was written indicates that it was an rcmp officer who had previously worked undercover had some sort of relationship with cecil smith so he re-entered his persona to have a friendly conversation with his old buddy and in that report he describes cecil smith as being completely exhausted completely tired of the speaking tour, completely tired of propaganda work, and just very eager to go home and spend time with his wife who he's been away from for the past two years. So the speaking tour only lasts about two months, and it's almost exclusively in Ontario and Quebec. The speaking tours seem to be run by zone, different groups, different speakers are assigned to different parts of the country. So Cecil Smith never does a big national tour. And then he comes back to Toronto, settles in, and begins working on his official history, that project, and also working with the Rehabilitation Committee, um, standing up a new political committee for uh, what's called St. John's Ward in the center of Toronto, and uh, then the Second World War starts. So the Second World War is interesting because he breaks with the party... Or not, I guess, I guess goes against the party's wishes in some ways by, by really saying, you know, this is a, this is a war that needs to happen. Um, and then obviously he, he signs up to join the Canadian military. Uh, and you talked a little bit about that, but um, I was thinking about this in terms of like the use of which various uh, Spanish Civil War volunteers could have been to the Canadian state during the Second World War. I mean, I think the the Eastern Europeans or, or the, the volunteers who were from the, the Balkans probably proved themselves to be the most useful when they, you know, joined the special operations executive and linked up with Tito or whatever else they were up to. Um, but Cecil Smith in, in some cases, I guess, or in, in his own right, I guess, would have been potentially a, a very useful person to have in, you know, 
the very immediate sense of he could have, you know, mentored other soldiers. Uh, he was a committed anti-fascist in terms of like being able to kind of instill the like the political importance of this of this conflict. So do you have yeah do you have I guess uh, any kind of anecdotes or or uh, could give a bit of an overview about his second stint in the Canadian military? Yeah. So uh, first, I'd add that this is the you mentioned the second stint, the second in the Canadian military. Just wave top of Cecil Smith's military experience. He was in the militia in Shanghai. Okay. Then he was in the Canadian militia, then the Spanish Republican Army, and then the Canadian Army again. Wow. So he, he, he had worn a number of different uniforms, but it was not exactly your traditional military career. So when the Second World War broke out, um, the whole Communist Party was still on the this is a anti-fascist war, we support it. But then the instructions from the Comintern following the non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Germany caught up, and then the party flipped in September, saying, no, this is an imperialist war. Central Smith never, never flipped. So everyone was singing from the same sheet of music up until that point, and then the party leadership said, no, we are against this war. Cecil Smith maintained throughout that this is an anti-fascist war, and it's extremely important. In the early days, there was, and you have to be careful with some of these RCMP reports because some of them can be a little bit sensationalist, but there's often a grain of truth in even the most sensationalist report, right? Uh, the RCMP had received a report that communists were to join the Canadian Army in the initial wave, and that they were to report their membership to Edward Cecil Smith so that they could basically form a shadow government is, uh, is, is too strong. They never, unlikely they would have been able to achieve anything in that way, but more of knowing who's where and which units they had influence over. So the Mounties were very concerned about Cecil Smith, and they were very concerned about that infiltration. And they were not the only ones. The military was concerned about this too. Cecil Smith didn't immediately try to join the Canadian Army, but he wrote a letter to the Minister of National Defense stating, send the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. I will lead the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. So he didn't just join the Canadian Army. He wanted the MacPaps to be reformed. And he wasn't the only one who thought this was a good idea. There was rumblings in the other party papers across the country that this might be a good thing. Cecil Smith got a little bit of trouble because he didn't actually ask permission before he sent the letter. <laughs> um, but the other funky thing is that from Cecil Smith's writings, it's clear that he didn't he wasn't thinking in terms of Britain and France. He was thinking in terms of Poland. So this makes for a really interesting counterfactual scenario of what if the minister had said yes? What if the minister of national defense said, yes, I accept your offer. We're putting the band back together again and we're sending you to Poland. Wow. Yeah. That's quite surreal. pretty hard to imagine that happening. <laughs> and I guess, I guess if he saw what you would like nominally call a, a bourgeois government in Spain, like come to work with the communist party, that he thought this could conceivably work in Canada. But that's, that's really his way. <laughs> yeah. But he also saw the scale of the repression, so I don't know how. Anyway, I guess it's worth a shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in the name of uh, fighting fascists. Yeah. Maybe we can put those differences aside and all work together. It's, it's, it's just a very interesting scenario. Uh, but then his, his offer was obviously declined. So he joined the Canadian Army. Or he tried to join the Canadian Army, failed the eye test, he had terrible eyesight, uh, went home, memorized the eye chart, came back in, joined. And he was, um, I think it's interesting that he did not attempt to join as an officer. So he was a battalion commander, and then he came back, joined the Canadian Army, and joined it as a, he was in the engineer, so he's a sapper, but that's a private. I think there's two possible explanations for that. One was he really never wanted to be an officer in the first place. 
and he was very much on the record of that. He certainly never wanted to be a battalion commander. He preferred being a company commander. Uh, so he may have just gone with a job that he thought would be more uh, more pleasant for him, as much as this sort of work in wartime can be pleasant. And the second part of it was maybe he was deliberately staying away from being an officer because he knew that his politics and political history would be a problem. That he'd be more likely to get in trouble, he'd be under more scrutiny if he was in a leadership position. So he didn't, he didn't want that. And his, uh, his commanding officer was very happy with his performance. He actually promoted him very quickly to Lance Corporal and was happy to see that Cecil Smith was running training on his own time, like passing on information to the much more junior soldiers. But ultimately, the RCMP was quite adamant that Cecil Smith should be removed from the military. He certainly shouldn't be deployed. But there's this really interesting talking past each other thing between the Canadian Army and the RCMP. So the RCMP tells the Army, get rid of him. The Army says, yes, we will. And then they say, yes, we have. But even as they were telling the RCMP that Cecil Smith had been removed from the military, he was still in the military for another month. And it so... Based on the medical records and how he was removed, it appears to me that his commander did his best to give Cecil Smith the opportunity to get removed from the military for medical reasons. Knowing that his eyesight was as bad as it was, and he had other health concerns. So Cecil Smith was out of the military in January 1940, even though the RCMP believed he still he had been kicked out in December. And he was removed because he failed his eye test. But this allowed Cecil Smith, A, to retain his honor, which was important in wartime. And B, it gave him access to all of the, um, all the entitlements that veterans were allowed for. So when Cecil Smith later in life had a stroke, the only reason he was able to get into the veterans hospital was because of his brief service in the Canadian Army. Oh, wow. And his headstone um, here in Toronto was actually provided by Veterans Affairs Canada. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Especially in the wake of all those, the conversations that have been had uh, about Mackenzie Papineau uh, Battalion and, and its relationship with the, the Canadian government and yeah. commemoration and everything that he, that he got kicked out of the army because he was in Spain, effectively. But, <laughs> but still. Right. <laughs> But then, yeah, managed to hold on to it because his, his commander respected him so much. So that's, yeah. that's interesting. So how did he live the rest of his life after he was discharged from the army? So the traditional narrative on Cecil Smith's life was after he joined the army against the party's wishes. That was the end of the relationship. Uh, it was the beginning of the end, but not quite. Cecil Smith... Um, was on the record as having spoken to a number of police informers of wanting to do more party work, even after this had happened. Uh, he was also involved in the Canadian Seamen's Union, which was a, it was a heavily Communist Party-influenced union. Many of the key leaders were, were also members of the Communist Party. Cecil Smith had actually started doing this union work before he got out of the Canadian Army. And he was involved in their general strike. There was a strike across the Great Lakes uh, at the beginning of the Second World War. So he actually got a job on a ship and acted as a, as a labor organizer. And then when the leadership of the Canadian Seamen's Union was interned during the war, uh, Cecil Smith stepped up and became the editor of their newspaper. But when they were released from prison, that seemed to be the end. Prior to that, he was doing a fair bit of propaganda work. He did some a fair bit of writing on the Soviet Union. He wrote a book that was published on the Communist Party press at Ever-Ready Printing. Uh, but halfway through the war, all of his activities just sort of fizzled out. 
It's not exactly clear why. It may have just been the culmination of uh, bad blood between him and the leaders. It may have just been the the war time wasn't the best time to be active in the party. Uh, but he very much moved on to a conventional career as a magazine editor. He worked a few jobs in Toronto. And then he got a job which he worked for about 20 years in Montreal. Where he edited magazines about uh, cooking and woodworking and hobbies and different things. And that was it. His, according to his son, Bill, uh, Edward Cecil Smith had copies of the Canadian Tribune around the house. Uh, he was eager to talk about these subjects. He was very politically interested, but no indication of any party activity. And although the RCMP kept the file on Cecil Smith every day until he died, um, there was no indication that there was any continued party activity. He very much seemed to settle into a comfortable lifestyle um, with a house, a kid, a car, working as a magazine editor. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, there's a few more, even more cultural history there to, to parse. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to plug a, a little more the the book and and anything else you've written or are writing right now before we wrap up? Yeah, well, my book is called "Not for King or Country: Edward Cecil Smith, the Communist Party of Canada, and the Spanish Civil War." Uh, the title clearly being a play on um, the rallying cry that had brought so many young Canadian men and women to arms uh, was clearly not the rallying cry that was in play here. So try to unpack uh, unpack the why and make sense of it all. So that book will be coming out from University of Toronto Press in 2019. Um, I'll, I'll be sure to let you know the date when I have it. And uh, beyond that, the William Crame research got a pretty solid first draft. I will see when I'm ready to submit it. I'm going to need to get to the, the Hoover Institute to finish that research, and they've shuttered their doors for renovations for all of 2019. So that puts a pretty hard cap on when that'll be done. Yeah, absolutely. But more to follow. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And that was Tyler Wenzel speaking to us about Ed Cecil Smith. You can find out more information about his upcoming book and other talks and papers that he has given and written on our website at SpanishCivilWar.ca slash podcast. Today's podcast was written by Kevin Levangi and recorded and produced by Karina Mickelson and Kevin Levangi. With special thanks to Tyler Wenzel for joining us. Our theme song is Libertad by Iriarte and Pazoa and is from the Free Music Archive. We are supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. You can always get in touch with us on Twitter at CanadaSCW, and you can always find out more and find ways to contact us on our website, SpanishCivilWar.ca. And check back in two weeks for part two of our interview with Tyler when we talk about military history, the Foreign Enlistment Act, and some other really interesting research and writing that Tyler has been doing. So listen in. Mm-hmm.